We are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll read from it in just a second. But in case you haven't been with us, let me catch you up on where we are. We don't know a lot about the book of Hebrews, but what we know for sure is the most important thing, which is the audience. And the people receiving this letter are a group of people who were ethnically Jewish, but have decided to leave Judaism and start following Jesus. And so they've converted. But all that they've found in their experience of Christianity is that it hasn't been comfortable or easy or all that they thought it would be at all. They've been persecuted. They have pressure from their families, from their communities, from their societies. Hard things have come into their lives. And so here's what's happening. They're thinking, uh, maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah after all. Why is life so hard? Maybe we should just go back. Maybe we should go back to Judaism and leave this all behind us. And so what the author is trying to do for them and for us is convince them that Jesus is better. He is better. For them, it means he is better than Moses and Aaron and the angels. He is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system and the temple and the high priest. He's better. And so he's begging them, don't go back to the lesser things. Stay with Jesus who is better. Now, what does that have to do with us? I'm guessing that none of you are considering going this afternoon to make an animal sacrifice, right? You're not thinking about that. That's not really on your radar. Maybe you have a pet you don't really want anymore, but it would be a different thing, right? You know, you're not thinking about doing that. But have you ever had a moment where you asked yourself a question, maybe you weren't even bold enough to say it out loud, where you thought, is any of this even worth it? Does it even work at all? (laughs) Is following Jesus make any difference in my life in 2023, or should I just leave it all behind? You're probably not ethnically Jewish. Maybe some of you are, but most of you aren't. And so you're not thinking about going back to Judaism, but you probably have thought about turning your back on Jesus for something for some comfort, for power, for money, because of your sexual desire, you've thought about it. And so the message of Hebrews is a message that we also desperately need to hear. Or maybe for you, you've never really thought about leaving Christianity and and making some public announcement of it. That would be very uh, dramatic, right? But subtly, you've fallen into this place in your faith where it's all duty and no desire. You don't really feel it. You're not really desiring it. You show up and play the game. You do the whole thing. You haven't left Jesus necessarily, but you're not totally with him either. And you're struggling to see, is Jesus really better? Is that really true? Can he really fulfill me? Can he really satisfy me? And so this message of Hebrews is one that we need to hear. He's better than any way of life or belief system or idol or source of happiness. And so that's the author's whole goal. And the way he approaches it is this. What we're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews is sort of this good cop, bad cop routine. So good cop is the Jesus is better passages. So he'll say, hey, Jesus is better. Don't go back to this other thing. Look what you would be leaving. And then the bad cop comes in in these five warning passages that we see in the book of Hebrews. And the bad cop says, hey, if you leave, here's the consequences. Here's what's going to happen to you. Here's the end result of you leaving the faith. And so back and forth, trying to convince these followers of Jesus not to leave and go back and to convince us of the same. And so we have one of both in chapter three. The first six verses are about how Jesus is better than Moses. And then verses seven to 19, where we'll focus most of our time, is a warning of the consequences of leaving Christ. So let's read all of chapter three together. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, 
Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses, who was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then the warning, starting here in verse seven, that we'll focus on. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, if we hold our original confidence to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. So the first question we have to ask is this, why do warning passages like this exist? Why would God say something to us like he does in verse 12? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Is God trying to get you to question your salvation? Is he trying to uh, scare you into obedience? Is he trying to make you think, hey, you're right on the line. You're going to fall off at any moment. Is he trying to make you insecure? Is he trying to make you, uh, if say, if you have any doubts, you're out of the faith? Is he trying to say, if you're in sin, you're not a son or a daughter? What's the point of these warning passages? Why do we have these in Scripture? You know, um, one of the things I've been most surprised in in parenting is the things that I've had to tell my kids not to do and convince them very hard they're bad things to do. So, for example... I never thought I would have to say, if you put your hands in the toilet again and then into your mouth, you're going to time out. I never thought I would have to say that. And I definitely thought, I never thought that somebody would argue with that line of reasoning and question that. I never thought I would have to say, stop teaching your sister how to stick her hand down her throat and gag herself. I never thought I'd have to say that. But I say it almost every day. And I get challenged on that warning. What's the point? I would be a terrible parent if I never warned my kids of consequences, right? Because love necessitates warning. Love necessitates warning. I know things my kids don't know. And so to keep them safe, I have to warn them. 
I can see the end result of actions that my kids can't see. So I have to say to them, don't run out in the road. Even if you can't see the car, don't run into the road and get squashed like a bug, as my daughter has now started saying. We didn't teach her that one. I don't know where that came from. We, have to warn, we just have to say, don't touch the hot stove because we can see the consequences. Love necessitates warning. Now think about this. If I know that as an earthly parent with limited knowledge and limited wisdom and my knowledge and wisdom and my kids' knowledge and wisdom is like this, how much more a heavenly father who has knowledge and wisdom here and we're way down here how much more does he have to warn us because he knows the end result of our actions? He knows where uh, sin and leads us. He knows. And so love necessitates warning. And so here's going to be the reality of this passage in this sermon. It's not going to feel very gracious. We're not going to probably leave feeling very warm and fuzzy about ourselves. But here's what we have to know. Just keep this framework in mind. This passage is not God's judgment, it's God's grace. One of the ways that God keeps you in the faith is by warning you about the consequences of walking away. It's one of the ways he keeps us safe. It's one of the ways Jesus can say, all that you've given me, I won't lose one because love necessitates warning. And so God warns us. And so what's the warning in our passage? Look back at verse eight, and then you can see it again in verse 15. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. So watch out for hard-heartedness. It's a disease we're all susceptible to, so make sure it doesn't happen to you. And so here's what he does. In verses 7 through 11, he gives us a case of hard-heartedness, a case study, a picture of this disease of hard-heartedness in 7 through 11. And then in 12 through 14, he gives us three antidotes to the disease, three ways that we can be cured of hard-heartedness. So we'll follow the same outline. First of all, a case study of hard-heartedness. I'm going to read verses 7 to 11 again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they'll always go astray in their heart, for they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So one of the reasons we're studying the book of Hebrews, if you remember, is that Hebrews is the most Old Testament, New Testament book we have. It references the Old Testament over and over again. And actually what we have here, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Inception, is like a reference within a reference. It's like an inception in the Bible. So what's happening is Hebrews 3 is quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is quoting a lot of the Old Testament, but specifically probably Exodus 17. And so this is a great case study of how the New Testament and the Old Testament relate. And here's what's happening in Exodus 17, if you go all the way back. In Exodus 17, God's people have been led out of slavery in Egypt. They've just gotten manna in chapter 16, but in chapter 17, they get thirsty and they get angry with God and they start to complain. And the author is referencing uh, this event. But Psalm 95 is really a commentary on the whole experience of the Israelites in the desert. They're constantly complaining. They're constantly uh, rebelling. They're constantly hardening their hearts against God. And it all comes to a head in Numbers chapter 14. Listen to Numbers 14, 28 to 30. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into this land 
where I swore that I would make you dwell. In other words, they came right up to the edge of the promised land, but they didn't make it because they hardened their hearts against God. And so here's the point of the case study. Learn from them. Look at their example. Don't do what they did and not make it to the end because the consequences are devastating. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at four ways the Exodus generation hardened their hearts to learn from their story. Four things that they did wrong that got them to this place where they didn't make it to the end. First of all, they forgot God's faithfulness in the past. They forgot God's past faithfulness. Verse nine says, your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So just think about this story, right? Think about all these people would have seen. They're in Egypt, they're slaves there, and two million people are brought out of Egypt, a cloud uh, um, by day and a fire by night. God's presence clearly with them. God parts the Red Sea, they walk straight through it. Manna falls from the sky, water comes from the rock, right? I mean, they have seen God's faithfulness in the past if anybody's ever seen it. And, and we, we start to think, Man, if I uh, had seen all of that, I would have so much stronger faith, right? Like if I had seen the Red Sea and the manna and the rock, like I would, right? Like I would never doubt God for a second. But if you think that way, you miss the whole point of the book of Hebrews, because what's the point? Jesus is better than all of that. <laughs> Jesus is better than all of that. He is the true Exodus. He is the one who led us out of slavery and into freedom. He is the true Red Sea. He is the one through whom we crossed over from life to death, or death to life. He is the true manna, the bread of life from heaven for us. He is the living water that comes from a rock that satisfies us. In the language of Hebrews, they only got to see the shadow. We live in the reality. And so we think, man, I'm so jealous of the Israelites. But the reality is if the Israelites could talk to you, they would say, I'm so jealous of you because you've seen things I could only dream of, that I could only hope for. That was the point of the beginning of the passage, right? Jesus is better than Moses. And so, brothers and sisters, here's the warning that we learned from them. They saw so much and yet they still fell away. We have seen so much, but we're so quick to forget God's past faithfulness. We're so quick to forget what God has done for us in the past and we begin to harden our hearts. Number two, the way they hardened their hearts was they complained about their current circumstances. They complained about their current circumstances. So we already said this and saw it, but God has led them out of slavery. He's given them um, literally honey biscuits from heaven, right? Like he's given them water out of the rock, but they won't stop complaining. It's a hard journey to the promised land. They're constantly complaining against God uh, about their leaders. They complain to each other. And so very simple point, where in your life have you, you chosen to complain rather than be content? Where in your life has a spirit of complaining risen up about your spouse or your lack of a spouse, about your kids and the stage that they're in, about your job, about the state of our country, about your marriage, about whatever it is. Where has complaining arisen in your heart? And see how complaining begins to callous you, how it begins to harden you. Learn from their example. Number three, how they hardened their hearts. They remembered their past sins with delight. 
They remembered their past sins with delight. So in the midst of their wandering, God's people somehow started to think. We saw this as we're reading through the Bible, right? You know, it really wasn't that bad in Egypt. We had it pretty good. Listen to what they say in, e in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. In Egypt, we sat by the meat pots. All right, just pause. I don't know what a meat pot is, but it doesn't sound like anything that I would want, but apparently it's a good thing. So just, we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of this wilderness, into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, numbers 11, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. We had meat pots. We had unlimited breadsticks. We had charcuterie boards. We had free fish. Really? Seems like I remember that situation a little bit differently. Seems like I remember you were slaves and your burdens kept increasing and your job kept getting harder and you were under back-breaking work all the time. It seems like I remember that the Egyptians were killing your kids, but they want to go back. They begin to harden their hearts because what they start to do is to remember their past sins with delight, with pleasure. Sin always highlights the benefits and hides the costs. Sin always highlights the benefits and hides the cost. Listen to what Richard Sibbs says. Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. We start to harden our hearts when we look back and go, you know what, that sin I used to commit, that sin that I used to have in my life, it actually was pretty satisfying. It actually did make me pretty happy. Hear this warning, brothers and sisters. One of the ways we harden our hearts is by looking back at our sin like that. Number four, they stopped repenting. They stopped repenting. Verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Slowly but surely, the Israelites became numb to the conviction of sin. They were less affected by it, and they stopped sensing the urge to repent of it. Hiding your sin is the surest way to harden your heart. Hiding your sin is the surest way to harden your heart. Maybe you could picture it like this, thought of this this week. I had a um, fence post come out in my yard. We had to take it out to do some stuff and I'm not handy. And so uh, I'm figuring this out, right? I watched like 19 YouTube videos to how to get the fence post back in the ground. I don't think it's done right, but it's in for now. Okay, so uh, what, what you do, right, is um, concrete, it works like this. You pour the concrete in, and then you pour enough water in, and eventually it gets hard. And I thought about sin working this way, when we don't repent of it. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but imagine a bucket full of water, and you pour a spoonful of cement in, and nothing really happens. And then another, and then another, and then another, and slowly but surely, it will harden. And that's exactly how sin works in our hearts. When we hide our sin from God and live in secret sin and don't live in a constant uh, mode of repentance, slowly but surely we harden. We don't notice it, but it happens to us and it happened to them. And so we learn from the example of the Israelites, don't get infected with this disease of hard-heartedness. And then he gives us three, three antidotes Three antidotes to this disease, three ways we make sure we avoid this same fate. Antidote number one, examine your heart, pay attention to the warning signs. Examine your heart, pay attention to the warning signs. Verse 12, take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, watch out, pay attention, examine yourself. And then that next word is so important. Take care who? Brothers. That um, Greek word could be brothers and sisters. So ladies, you're not out on this one. So we all have to pay attention to this warning. Take care, brothers and sisters. What's the point of that? The point is to make sure that we don't think, oh no, this warning doesn't apply to me. I'm in church. I believe in Christ. I'm already a son or daughter. This is for the atheists or the agnostics or the skeptics or the seekers. No, this warning, brothers and sisters, is for us. Those who consider ourselves a part of the family. And so Hebrews 3 teaches us this. Having great spiritual privileges does not guarantee true saving faith. Our mere presence in this room does not mean that we know Christ. This warning is for all of us. Those who have said they believe in Christ their whole life, for every elder in this room, for every pastor, for every covenant kid, all of us, examine yourselves, take close attention. This is one of the ways that God keeps us in the faith. So how do we do this? How do we examine our hearts? Uh, What you have to do is you have to look for warning signs. You can't wait until you're totally hardened, right? You have to look for warning signs. I was thinking about the warning signs that come on in my car all the time on my dashboard, um, which I ignore 100% of the time because I don't know what they mean. Uh, like what's a yellow triangle with an exclamation mark in the middle supposed to mean? And so largely what I do is ignore the warning signs and hope they go away, right? And we do the same thing spiritually. We just blow right through the spiritual warning signs. So I'm just gonna give you, there's eight of these. These are from John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I won't comment on them. If you're a note taker, you're gonna want all of them. I'll email them to you later. Don't even try to write them down. You're not gonna make it, okay? I'm just gonna read them. Early warning signs that we're falling away and hardening our hearts. Number one, we stop thinking about anything that reminds us of God, death, and the judgment to come, and instead focus on thoughts that produce pleasure and comfort. We give up any pretense of acting like a Christian in our private, personal life by neglecting prayer, giving into temptation, and not feeling any sorrow over sin. We avoid joyful, mature Christians. From there, they become less enthusiastic about church attendance and participation in corporate worship. To justify their actions, they start to nitpick and look for faults in the lives of other Christians to prove they're all hypocrites and provide an excuse for, attending, for avoiding church. Then they begin to surround themselves with people who lead them further into sin. Eventually, they begin to live in more and more secret sin. And finally, unrestrained by godly influences, they begin to sin more openly and excuse their sins. And so, Pay attention to the warning signs. Hear this as God's love and God's grace to you, not to harden your heart, but to pay attention. Antidote number two. Antidote number two to a hard heart. Intrusive relationships. Intrusive relationships. Verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In summary, Christianity is a group project, uh, which if you were ever part of a group project in school, uh, probably does not bring up positive memories for you, right? You were either the kid who did all the work or the kid who did none of the work, right? Some of you just raised your hand, not a good sign. (laughs) Christianity is a group project. 
We need each other. We can't do it by ourselves. Let me give you uh, this verse in, summarized in four words is this. You have blind spots. I was sitting on the front pew 20 minutes ago, and Rob Martin had to tell me that my collar was up in the back. I could not see it, right? We need each other to show us our blind spots, the very nature. If sin is deceitful, what does that mean? It means it can deceive us and we can't see it. And so we need one another. We need, blind, we need people to show us our blind spots. Let me, um, this happens all the time. Let me give you a couple examples. We have things we cannot see about ourselves. Have you ever heard your voice on a recording before? Anybody? I guarantee you, if you have, you heard it and said, oh no, that's not me, that's the wrong recording. I don't sound like that at all, right? <laughs> and everyone around you says, no, that's exactly what you sound like. And it's like 10 times worse than you ever thought. <laughs> or have you ever seen one of those um, TV talent shows, American Idol, The Voice, whatever, those kind of things, especially American Idol. I haven't seen the other one, so I should, I should just say American Idol. The first two episodes or three episodes are all what? People who come on who actually think they can sing, and they are horrible, right? I mean, they're horrible. Like, we all laugh, and we all know, and we can immediately see it. What's happened in that person's life? No one has had the grace to tell them, you're not good at singing, even though you think you are, right? We have blind spots, things we can't see, and so we need each other. And here, so here's what that means you need in your life. You need intentionally intrusive relationships not just relationships, but people who have free reign in your life to tell you the truth, to say anything to you, to point out things that you're not going to want to hear. You have to have it. And it'll feel intrusive, but it will save your life. We can't do life alone. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown, shuns the light. In the darkness of, un of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of the most pious community. We need each other. I don't know if y'all saw um, ChatGPT recently led its first worship service in Germany. If you don't know what ChatGPT is, I don't know how to explain it. I'm not smart enough. It's like artificial intelligence. We'll just move on. It led its first worship service, uh, only uh, avatars on the screen in Germany, and 300 people came to kind of take in the spectacle, right? And I mean, I think most people were there because it was like kind of fun, and they just wanted to see what was happening. But we... We're sort of desiring that for a reason, and I think the reason is this. We've begun to think about church as a place where we just come and passively consume religious content, where we just come in here and someone pours into us. But the biblical view of church is not that you're a passer, passive consumer, but an active participant. It says in the passage, as long as it is called today, which means every day, every moment, we're in each other's lives, making sure we're not blinded by the deceitfulness of sin and that we keep following Jesus. We have to keep encouraging each other, keep reminding each other of the gospel, keep confessing to each other, keep holding one another accountable. We cannot do life alone. 
We need each other. It's one of the ways God keeps us in the faith and our hearts soft. And then lastly, antidote number three to a hard heart, keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Verse 14, for if we have come to share, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. This is such an important verse. How do we know we belong to Christ? If, if we hold our original confidence to the end. Not that holding your original confidence to the end makes you share in Christ or makes you a Christian, but it proves that you've become a Christian, that you keep moving, that you keep following him. In other words, our security comes not from a past event in our lives, but a present posture. Are you still putting one foot in front of another to follow Jesus? Are you still keeping your eyes on the finish line? I ran a um, marathon one time, which was a terrible idea. Don't ever do it. If people tell you to do it, they're, they're deceiving you. That is not community you want in your life. So I ran a marathon one time, and um, in marathon training, at least the plan I followed, they only let you train up to 20 miles. So, because apparently you're not supposed to run 20 miles and then 21 miles and then 22 miles. Your body would fall apart. So they're like, train to 20 and then figure out the rest, right? So I trained up to 20 miles and I'll never forget, Jen was at the 20 mile mark on the race course. And she was like, how do you feel? And I said, I feel incredible. I'm running faster than I thought I was going to run. This is easy. And then I got to mile 21 and my whole body fell apart. It like rejected me as a person. And so I started cramping, I'll never forget. I stopped cramping, or started cramping, and I made the fatal mistake of stopping to stretch. At which point my body thought, oh, we're done, thank goodness, and started shutting down. And I still had five miles to go. And so the only thing that kept me going, two things really kept me going, thinking about the finish line and being done, that was one. And the second one was a Marine with a 50 pound weighted uh, vest on was running the marathon. And I thought, I, he, if he can do this with 50 pounds on his back, I can do this, right? And so how, what do I do? One foot in front of another, just keep looking to the finish line and make it to the end. <laughs> just make it, just keep focusing. The antidote to hard heartedness. How do you know that you're still following Jesus? How do you keep following him? I mean, some of you are walking through impossible situations right now. What do you do? One foot in front of another. <laughs> Just keep moving. Just keep going towards the finish line, toward Jesus. And so how can you keep from hardening your heart and not finishing? Just don't stop running. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so in summary, if God speaks, if God is speaking to you, listen to him. If he's leading you, follow him. If he commands you, obey him. If he convicts, repent. And if he promises, trust him. He warns us because he loves us. One of the ways he keeps us secure and keeps us in the family is by warning us and telling us to look for the warning signs of hard-heartedness. And so, brothers and sisters, in this group project that we're all on in together, let's help each other keep following Christ and make it to the end. Let's pray. Father, um, we trust that hard words create soft people and hopefully soft hearts. 
that we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible or a phone, go ahead and pull out Hebrews chapter three. That's where we'll be this morning. But if you haven't been with us or uh, have forgotten about the book of Hebrews, let me just remind you of the main theme, which is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. If you were summarizing the whole book of Hebrews, that's what it would all be about. And we don't actually know a lot about the book of Hebrews. We're not sure exactly when it was written or who it was written by, but we do know the most important piece for helping us understand it, which is who it was written to. The audience of the book of Hebrews is a group of ethnically Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. So they've started to follow Jesus. But along the way, what they found is it's nothing like what they expected. They are enduring persecution like we just prayed for. They're enduring pressure from their families and from their communities, from society around them. They're enduring hardship in their life. And they're thinking, is any of this worth it? Or should we just go back to Judaism? And so the author is writing with that purpose in mind to convince them that Jesus is better. And so for them, he's saying, Jesus is better than all that Judaism has to offer. He's better than the angels and Moses and Aaron. He's better than uh, the sacrificial system with the animals. He's better than the high priest and the temple. So he's writing all these things to convince them. Don't turn away from Jesus. Now, my guess is none of you are thinking about going back to the animal sacrificial system. If you are, we should talk after the service, right? Like that's not, that would be a problem. Maybe you have a pet you wanna get rid of, but that's a whole different issue. Uh, you're, not, you're not necessarily thinking about doing that, but I bet you've thought recently, is any of this worth it? Does Christianity make any difference at all in real life? Does it have any real practical value? Is all that I'm sacrificing for Christ gonna pay off in the end or should I just quit? Or maybe, You're walking through something hard in your life and you're thinking, maybe I should just give up or maybe I should just go to something to temporarily satisfy me right away. Some idol in your heart like money or power or sexual desire or whatever it is. We've all thought, is this worth it? Is there something better than Jesus? And so if that's you, or maybe you're just the person here this morning And you're not thinking about leaving the faith and making some big show of it. For you, that would be pretty dramatic, like you're not gonna do something like that. But you've just settled into a rhythm in your life of duty. There's no real delight in the Christian life for you. You're not really loving Jesus. You're not not with him, but you're not with him either. You're just going through the motions. If any of those things apply to you, the book of Hebrews is a good word for you to hear because you need to be convinced, convinced that Jesus is better. He's better than any other way of life, any other religious system, any other idol, any other comfort, any other satisfaction, he's better. And so we have to be reminded of that. And the way the author does it is he goes through this kind of good cop, bad cop routine. If you're a parent, maybe you've done this before with your kids. So one, one side, he's like the good cop and he's coming and saying, hey, Jesus is better. Look at all these benefits of following Jesus. Don't go back. And then the bad cop side of him comes in and there's these five warning passages in the book of Hebrews that say, hey, if you leave Christ, here are the consequences. Here's where it's gonna happen. Here's what the end result of that decision will be for you. So in chapter three, we have one of both. First, we're gonna see the argument that Jesus is better than Moses. And then in verses seven to 19, we're gonna see this uh, warning against leaving the faith. And that's kind of where we'll focus our time together, but we'll read this whole chapter together. So Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of, worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over the house as God's son. And we're his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then starting in verse seven, this warning that we're gonna be looking at together. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the word of God. So the first question we have to ask in a warning passage like this is why do warnings like this exist? Why does God include these in the Bible? Why would he say something like he does in verse 12 where he says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's terrifying, right? What does it mean? Why is it included? Is he trying to scare me into obedience? Is he trying to warn me that if I don't listen, I'm gonna lose my faith? If he's, is he trying to say, if I sin, I'm out of the family? Is he trying to say, if I have any doubts, I'm not a believer at all? What is he trying to do here? What's the point of passages like this? I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about how one of the most surprising things about parenting to me so far, we have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, one of the most surprising things about parenting so far is the things that I have to convince my kids are bad for them. And the things that have come out of my mouth that I never thought would come out of my mouth. For example, hey, when your sister uses the bathroom, don't reach in and grab stuff out and put it in your mouth, right? Like, and you know what happens? I say that, I get argued with, right? Like, what do you mean? Like, what's the big, you know, like, what are we doing right now? Never thought I'd have to warn of that. I never thought I'd have to say something like, hey, please stop grabbing dead animals that you find in the yard and bringing them in the house. Never thought I'd have to say that. Please stop telling your sister how to choke herself. I, these are things I never thought would come out of my mouth, right? I just never thought that I would say them. But here's the reality. As a parent, I know and I've realized that love necessitates warning. If I don't warn my kids of the consequences of their actions, I don't really love them. If I don't tell them, if you run in the street, you're gonna get hit by a car. If you touch the stove, you're gonna burn your hand. If I don't warn them of the uh, end result of their actions, I don't really love them because I know more than they know. I can see further than they can see. And brothers and sisters, if that's true of me and my kids, how much more true is it of God and us? That love necessitates warning 
God knows more than we know. He can see the end result of our actions. And so if he loves us, he has to warn us. And that's so important for you to sort of wrap your mind around right at the beginning here, because this is not gonna be a very hopeful sermon. This is not a very hopeful passage. But we have to remember that God warns us because he loves us. The idea is not that we can lose our faith if we don't listen. The idea is that one of the ways God keeps us in the faith is by warning us. And so he does that here as his grace to us. And what's the warning in our passage? He tells us in verse 8 and again in verse 15, do not harden your hearts. That's the warning. Do not harden your hearts. And what he's going to do is in verse 7 through 11, he gives us a case study of a group of people, the Israelites, who hardened their hearts. And then verses 12 through 14, he gives us three antidotes to that deadly disease of hardening your heart, three ways that you can be cured of a hard heart. So we'll look at it through the same lens. First, a case study of hard-heartedness. Let me read 7 through 11 again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we told you at the beginning of this sermon series, the reason that we're going through the book of Hebrews is the the book of Hebrews is the best New Testament book for understanding the Old Testament. The author is constantly going back to the Old Testament to make his argument. And what you have here, if you've seen the movie Inception before, is a little bit of an Inception moment. This is an Old Testament reference within an Old Testament reference. You're very excited, I can tell. Don't just try to contain yourself. And so the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 is actually quoting from the uh, Exodus, specifically in Exodus 17. And so here's what's happening is that in Psalm 95, the author is looking back at Exodus 17. And and if you remember, just to catch you up, God's people have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've done all of these things. But then you get to Exodus 16 and 17, and they start to complain. They start to rebel. They start to harden their hearts against God. And all of that sort of comes to a culmination in Numbers 14. If you remember, God sends spies to spy out the promised land where they're headed. And they come back with this report of they're too big. They're too strong. We can't take them. We can't trust God in this. And listen to the end result of their hardening of their heart. Numbers 14. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. In other words, they didn't make it. They didn't make it to the end. They hardened their hearts and they didn't get to enter God's rest. And so here's the point of the passage. Learn from them. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't harden your hearts and turn away from God. The consequences are devastating. So how can we learn from their story? Let me just show you four ways the Exodus generation hardened their hearts so we can learn not to harden our hearts. The first way they hardened their hearts is that they forgot God's past faithfulness. They forgot God's past faithfulness. Verse nine says, your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You know, it's pretty amazing if you think about what they saw. 
two million people walked out of Egypt from slavery, led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God brought manna down from heaven to feed them, water from the rock for them to drink. They crossed the Red Sea. They saw all of that, but they still hardened their hearts against God. And you know what we're tempted to think? We're tempted to think, man, if I saw all of that, there is no way I'm hardening my heart, right? The evidence would be overwhelming. If I could have seen all of that, I'm so jealous of them. But the reality is, if we think like that, we miss the whole point of the book of Hebrews, don't we? Because the whole book, point of the book of Hebrews, what we saw in the first six verses that we read, is that Jesus is better than Moses. To use language, language we'll see later in Hebrews. They only got the shadow, we get the reality. That what was the point of the Exodus? The point of the Exodus was to point to Jesus who would bring millions upon millions of people out of slavery to their sin and into salvation. What was the point of the Red Sea? That we cross over from death to life. What was the point of the manna? That Jesus is the true bread of life that feeds us and gives us life. What was the point of the rock and the water coming out? That Jesus provides living waters for us to drink so that we can have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the reality is they would look at you and be jealous of you. You've seen far more than they've seen. You know far more about God's faithfulness and his plan and all that he was gonna carry out than they know. And so the danger is here for us too, that we can forget God's past faithfulness. We've seen so much, but we so easily forget it. And it's one of the ways that we harden our hearts. Number two, they complained about their current circumstances. They complained about their current circumstances. If you've read through the Bible before, if you did that with us last year, you're totally exhausted by the Israelites by like Exodus 14, right? Like it is, you're so done. They're complaining about food and water and Moses's leadership and, and, and all the things, they're just constantly complaining. But what about us? Do you harden your heart by complaining? One, one way you develop calluses on your heart is through complaining and not contentment? Do you complain to other people and to God, to your family about anything? Do you complain about your job? Do you complain about the current state of our country? Do you complain about your marriage? Do you complain that you don't have a marriage? Do you complain about your kids or the stage of life that you're in? Complaining hardens us. It develops calluses on us and it makes us harden towards God. And the, so the third thing they do is they remember their past sins with delight. Third way they harden their heart, they remember their past sins with delight. Something flips for them after they've left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, where they begin to forget what Egypt was actually like. And they start to look back on it with fondness and think, man, I wish we could just go back to Egypt. We had it so good there. Listen to Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. In Egypt, we sat by the meat pots. I don't know what that is. That doesn't sound great, but it's a good thing, apparently. <laughs> and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. N Numbers 11. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. We had meat pots, all you can eat breadsticks, charcuterie boards, and free fish. Did they really? Is that really what their experience in Egypt was like? Because it seems like we remember what their experience in Egypt was actually like, was that they were crushed under the burden of slavery. 
What it was actually like was that the Egyptians were killing their kids. Sin always highlights the benefits and hides the costs. It always works like that. It highlights the benefits and hides the costs. Listen to what Richard Sibb says. Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. One of the ways we know, one of the ways we harden our hearts is that we start to look back on past sin in our life and go, you know what, that was actually pretty fulfilling, pretty satisfying, pretty good. That was a good time in life. Number four, they stopped repenting. They stopped repenting, verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Slowly but surely, the Israelites became numb to the conviction of sin and they stopped repenting. And brothers and sisters, the reality is hiding your sin is the surest way to harden your heart. Imagine um, a bucket of water and every time you sin and don't repent of it and confess it to God, it's like dumping a little bit of spoonful into that bucket of water. And nothing really happens at first. It turns gray, uh, it, you know, the color is different. But over time, if you add more spoonfuls of concrete over and over and over again, what will eventually happen? It will harden. And the same is true spiritually. <laughs> it may not seem like a very big deal to not confess your sin, to not repent of it, just to keep some of it secret and safe, but it's hardening your heart over time, slowly but surely. And so here's the point, here's the point. Learn from the example of the Israelites. Don't get infected with this disease of hard-heartedness. And then he gives us three antidotes, three ways to not catch this disease and to avoid their faith. Antidote number one, examine your heart and pay attention to the warning signs. Examine your heart, pay attention to the warning signs. Verse 12, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, watch out, pay attention, examine yourself. And then that next word is so important. Who examines themselves? Brothers. You could translate that by the way, brothers and sisters. So ladies, you're not out on this warning. Don't excuse yourself. What's the point of that? The point is that we can hear a warning like this and go, oh, well, I'm good. I'm a part of the family. I made a profession of faith a long time ago. I walked the aisle, I'm with Jesus. But the reality of the book of Hebrews and what it's calling us to in this warning is that none of us are exempt from it. All of us have to examine ourselves and look at our hearts. The Israelites would have thought more than anyone, right? Surely we're safe. Surely we'll make it. But Hebrews teaches us that having great spiritual privileges does not guarantee true saving faith. And so this warning is for all of us. Every lifelong believer in this room, every elder, every pastor, every covenant child, every single one of us, examine your heart. Don't ignore the warning signs. Um, warning signs, by the way, what are they? How do we know? How do we know that we've begun to harden our heart? Uh, don't look at the screen yet, look at me. I'm not ready to talk about that. I saw what y'all did. <laughs> Warning signs can be dangerous because we can just ignore them. I do that in my car all the time. The little icons come up in my car and I don't know what they mean. If anybody's in here and they make cars, we just need words like your engine is gonna blow up. You know, just like, 
I have a triangle with an exclamation mark. I'm like, I don't, that doesn't seem that bad. It's yellow. So like, you know, so just ignore it. It'll probably go away. I don't know. Something will happen. We can do the same thing spiritually. We can ignore the warning signs. And so what I want to do, these are eight warning signs that John Bunyan gives in Pilgrim's Progress. If you're a note taker, you're not going to be able to write these all down. I would love to email them to you later. Just listen as I read them to you. Early warning signs that we're falling away from Jesus as we examine ourselves. They stop thinking about anything that reminds them of God, death, and the judgment to come. And instead, focus on thoughts that produce pleasure and comfort. They give up any pretense of acting like a Christian in their personal life by neglecting prayer, giving into temptation, and not feeling sorrow over sin. They avoid joyful and mature Christians. From there, they become less enthusiastic about church attendance and participation in corporate worship. To justify their actions, they start to nitpick and look for faults in the lives of other Christians to prove they're all hypocrites anyway and provide an excuse for avoiding church. Then they begin to surround themselves with people who lead them further into sin. Eventually, they begin to live in more and more secret sin. And then finally, unrestrained by godly influences, they begin to sin more openly and excuse those sins. Love necessitates warnings, and so don't ignore the warning signs. Examine your hearts. Antidote number two to a hard heart. Intrusive relationships. Intrusive relationships. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, Christianity is a group project. Now that phrase group project, if you were ever in school, either makes you um, very nervous or very excited because there's only two kinds of people in a group project, the kid who does all the work and the kid who does none of the work, right? There's like no medium ground. And then you present and the kid who does all the work takes just as much credit, it's very frustrating. But Christianity in the best way possible, ignore all those um, scars from school, Christianity in the best way possible is a group project. We cannot follow Christ alone, we need each other. We need intrusive relationships. And so if you were gonna paraphrase this verse into four words, it would be this, you have blind spots. The fact that sin is deceitful means that sin deceives us. It doesn't allow us to see. We can't really see our hearts and things about us. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Have you ever heard uh, your voice on an audio recording? How many of you thought when you heard your voice on audio recording, I don't really sound like that. <laughs> like what kind of manipulation has happened in the technology industry? And your friends say, no, that's exactly what you sound like. Or if you've ever watched American Idol before, in the first like two or three episodes, what is it? It's all people who are somehow convinced that they're very talented coming and singing. And it's the worst thing you've ever heard in your life, right? You're like, who are these people's friends and family? And why has no one told them? But that's the reality. And that's what sin does to us. It deceives us and it creates blind spots. We cannot see. And so we need each other. And so what you need in your life is intrusive relationships. What I mean by that is people in your life who have full access to you, they can say anything to you, anything hard, the last thing you wanna hear, something that might offend you, they can hold you accountable. We have blind spots and so we need people to speak into those things. We can't do life alone. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. 
The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light and the darkness of the unexpressed. It poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. I don't know if y'all saw um, a couple of weeks ago, chat GPT, if you don't know what that is, like artificial intelligence, that's as much as I can tell you because as much as I understand. But chat GPT led a whole church worship service with four avatars on a screen in Germany and 300 people came to watch it, which is pretty fascinating. I mean, I think people just wanted to see the spectacle of it, like what was gonna happen. But it tells us something about our hearts that we're so drawn to that idea It tells us that we have a creeping notion that church is more or less a place where we consume passively religious content, where we just consume. But the picture of the book of Hebrews is that every believer is not just a passive observer, but an active participant, that what church actually is, is that we surround each other. It says, as long as it is called today, which means, I think, every day. We cannot stop doing this. It's how deceitful sin is, that we have to have intrusive relationships where we invite people into our lives to show us our blind spots so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We all have to be active participants in that journey together. It's the only way this antidote works. And then lastly, antidote number three to a hard heart, keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if Indeed, we hold our original confidence to the end. That's such a key verse. We've come to share in Christ. How do we know we belong to Jesus? If and only if we hold our confidence to the end. It's not that we earn our salvation by making it to the end. It's that we prove our salvation by making it to the end. And so what does that look like? It looks like just keeping going. Put one foot in front of the other. Keep the finish line in mind and don't stop running. I ran a marathon one time. It's a terrible idea. Don't listen to the people who tell you it's a good idea because it's not. Um, And in that marathon, in marathon training, for whatever reason, I think because it's dangerous, they only let you train up to like mile 20. So you do three, four, five, six, seven, all the way to 20, and then they're like, stop, because you shouldn't run 21, 22, and then 20, that's too much running, right? So you tramp to mile 20. So I go to the marathon. Uh, Jen was at mile 20, and I passed her at mile 20, and she said, how are you feeling? I've run 20 miles, okay? And I said, I feel amazing. I feel amazing. I'm running faster than I thought I was gonna run. I think I'm gonna set some sort of world record. I'm not sure. And this is like, the, no, everyone who says this was hard was lying. And then I got to mile 21 and my body uh, quit on me at mile 21. And here's the mistake I made. I thought, I'll just stop for a second and stretch because my hamstrings felt very tight. And you know what my body thought? Oh, thank goodness, we're finally done. Well, it turns out I've still got five miles to go. So what, I mean, how in the world do you make it, right? How do you get to the finish line? I had two motivations. One, there was a Marine with a 50 pound weighted vest who passed to me while I was stretching. And I thought, (laughs) if that guy can make it with 50 pounds on him, I can make it. And the other thing I kept thinking of was what I was going to do when I finished. 
oh, I can't wait to finally just lay down and eat and stretch and do whatever I wanna do. Finishing is gonna feel so good. And so it allowed me to keep one foot in front of the other and just keep moving. What's this antidote? How can you know if you're following Christ? That even if it's weak, even if you have to crawl, you keep putting one foot in front of another and don't stop following Jesus. That's how you can know you haven't hardened your heart and stay secure. Keep your eyes on the finish line and where you're going and don't stop running. And so in summary, how can you keep your heart from hardening? Brothers and sisters, if God speaks, listen to him. If he leads, follow him. If he commands, obey him. If he convicts, repent to him. If he promises, trust him. He loves us because he, or he warns us because he loves us. He doesn't want us to chase after sin or stop running and go to the inevitable consequences of falling away. So Jesus is better. He really is. Keep running, keep following him. Let's do it together. Let me pray. Father, these are hard 